this morning as we think about pursuing God and we turn our hearts toward the topic of obedience to God and holiness before God. Let me remind you how we're to pursue this before we even get into talking about the text. This is not our text, but it points to an important truth that I want you to be thinking of as a foundation and as a, a, a how-to aspect to our text today. The Lord writes in Psalm 34, He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack for no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. And that's how we come to God this morning. Taste and see His goodness compels us forward and His love comes along and hymns us in even in our brokenness. Let's pray. Father, in the strong name of Jesus, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would come and meet with us today, that we would seek you. Seek you. And you tell us if we'll seek you, you may be found. You will be found. I ask God that you would touch every heart in here this morning. God, we are your people and therefore we are to be holy. We are to be obedient to you, Father. Help us to do that today. Help us to see that. And Father, for those of us here who have never turned from sin and trusted Christ, would you open our eyes this morning that we might see the goodness of God fully displayed in Jesus Christ, that we might be saved, that we would turn from sin and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen and amen. So grab your seat and grab your copies of, God, uh, of God's Word, and let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, one of the things that our current culture finds rather difficult is getting to work on time. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Especially those of you who are employers, you, you maybe manage or you supervise or you're the owner of a, of a business, you would all be able to stand and say, that is true. Now, sometimes things just happen, right? We got to be fair. Some things happen that are out of our control, but for many Americans, being late is not an every now and, th now and then thing. It's, it's actually habitual. A recent workplace study found that 52% of people are late to work at least once a month. Now, some of y'all said, I thought it'd be higher than that, right? 52% of the workforce are late to work at least once a month. But 20% of employees are late to work at least twice a week. And for those that are late, they're late by an average of 21 minutes. But why are they late? Why? What are the reasons that we see? Well, a survey by Human Resources Services 
Career Builder, uh, they, they surveyed more than 1,000 human resource managers and another 800 employees at private sector companies around the U.S., and they found some really familiar reasons for why employees come to work late. Here are the top four reasons. First, traffic. Anybody ever been stuck in traffic on the way to work? Or you get one of them Scotty Ray notifications where a tanker's overturned on Frontage Street. I mean, <laughs> you got to get down Frontage Street, and you were going to go that way, but the, but the tanker's overturned. All right? So traffic is an issue. It's an issue. 51% of the people are late because of traffic. But second is oversleeping. I've done that before, right? And isn't that one of the most jarring things in the world, right? You're sitting there, and all of a sudden you wake up, and you look over the clock, ah! <laughs> and you jump up. I mean, it just it ruins your day, right? But a lot of us are late, because we oversleep. Third, 28% say they're late because of the weather. All right, now whether that be not a lot of snow around here, we don't have a lot of excuses, all right, but nevertheless, it does. Um, and from time to time, some precipitation comes down on the ground here, all right, and it can cause us to be a little late, drive a little slower than maybe we would normally drive. And then fourth, as they've surveyed, uh, 23% said they're just too tired <laughs> to get out of bed. <laughs> Been there before as well. But you know what? All of these excuses, they're boring. I mean, if, if, if I'm, if I'm going to hear an excuse, if I'm going to hear a reason, I want it to be one that I've never heard in my life, right? I want one that's going to be interesting, that's going to uh, tickle my fancy a little bit and say, wow. And people have come up with some amazing excuses of why they were late. One person, they showed up to work late, and when the boss asked them why, the, here's the excuse that was given. Morning sickness. Now, that's understandable, right? For a lot of ladies, morning sickness is a very real thing, right? Those, especially pregnant ladies, that's an understandable thing. The only problem was, this was a dude. <laughs> he was a little confused, maybe. One lady said she had been on time, but her fake eyelashes were stuck together. And they were really hard to get apart. One guy, he told his boss, he said, Look, I left home in plenty of time, but I realized coming out of the driveway that my left turn signal wasn't working properly, and so I had to take right turns the whole way to get here. <laughs> One guy, he biked to work, and he said that morning he had an unfortunate run in with a groundhog. He didn't run over the groundhog. The groundhog attacked him, bit his bike tire, and flattened it. That's one bad news groundhog, right? That wasn't Poxitoni Phil or whatever his name is, right? Wasn't that dude? He's, he's nice. Who's glad that uh, spring's coming, right? If you believe in that, okay? Nevertheless, a lot of fun with that. One lady said she would have been on time, but as she was walking out the door, she walked into a spider web. And she began to search for the spider. And when she couldn't find the spider, she had to go back inside and shower again because she could not think about going forward without first making sure that spider was gone. And speaking of animals, one fellow said that he just hated to be late, but when he woke up that morning, his heat was out. And before he left that morning, he had to make sure that his snake was warm. He likes his snake, apparently, right? Now, these folks, they may not be good at getting to work on time, but they are good at making excuses. But aren't we all? Aren't we all good at making excuses? Especially when it comes to the lack of obedience to God in our lives. I mean, God, I would have, but... Now, excuses are as old as the Garden of Eden. They've been around since the Garden of Eden. When God came looking for Adam and Eve after they sinned, the excuses started flying. 
Right when God questioned Adam, he, he was ready with an excuse. Yes, God, I ate what you told me not to eat, but it was her fault. <laughs> and he didn't stop there. Actually, God, you know what? It's actually kind of your fault because you gave me her. And then when God turned to Eve, what did Eve do? Excuses, right? God, it's the serpent's fault. The, the devil made me do it. And from that day forward, if there's one thing about the human race that you can count on, is that we make excuses, especially when it comes to our obedience to God. But let's be honest this morning, beloved. We have no good excuse. We have no good excuse. When we stand before God one day, no excuse will do. For that reason, as we turn to our text here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21, God calls us this morning to throw away our excuses. Get rid of your excuses. Here's today's takeaway. Today's takeaway that I want you to leave here with that the text is calling us to is to be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances. Now, we could say it this way. Be obedient children unto holiness without any excuse whatsoever. Now I want you to listen to this powerful word from God here in 1 Peter 13 through 21 calling you and me to do just that. Here's what the word of God says. It says, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who has called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it's written you shall be holy for I am holy and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus ends the reading of God's word today. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to ask that you bless us. God, you've blessed us already in the reading of your word. So Father, would you now bless us in the preaching of your word? And then God, would you bless us in the living out of your word? God, we confess to you today that there are areas where we are not holy. Yet that's what you call us to. And I pray today that you would ignite a passion in us today that we would be holy. I'm not talking about my neighbor. I'm not talking about my spouse, Father. <laughs> it's so easy to look at others and say they should be holy. God, you're talking to me today. You're talking to Ben Simpson. You're talking to each individual here today, Father. And I pray that you would help me, show me, motivate me to holiness. It's in Jesus' name we ask this and all God's people said. 
Amen. So be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances. Beloved, it's time to throw out the excuses. And if anybody had good excuses, perhaps it was the Christians that Peter were, that, that he was originally addressing here in this letter. Right? Remember looking back at, at verse 1? He was writing to brothers and sisters in Christ who lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All these are, are, are cities, churches in modern day Turkey. And these Christians, they were going through some difficulties. And it was about to get worse. It was about to get work, uh, worse. I mean, they were being grieved by various trials, according to verse 6. And these refining fires were only going to get hotter, right? I mean, entire persecution is going to break out here in just a few years, right? Across the Roman Empire. Going to take Peter's life first, and then Paul's life, and countless Christians along with them. And as the Christian life became more difficult, God knew where the fallen human heart loves to turn. Excuses. When the going gets tough, we turn to excuses. God, I want to be obedient to you, but... And so God in His grace, through Apostle Peter here, he cuts them off at the pass before they can ever even begin to do it. He says, here is why we're not going to make excuses. Before they'd even begin with all the reasons that they can't be obedient to God. He gives them all the reasons they should be obedient to God no matter the circumstances. And y'all look, God His grace is doing the very same thing for you and for me. Now, we may not be facing the exact thing that they were facing back in Peter's day here, but you and I were still prone to doing what they were about to do or what they maybe their flesh wanted to do, and that is to, to make excuses for why we can't be holy. You often say, oh, nobody's perfect. Try that before God one day when you stand before Him. Oh, nobody's perfect. God says, you're going to see here, Perfection is his standard. Perfection is what we strive for. And we don't just flippantly say, nobody's perfect, as if that makes it okay. So I wonder this morning, what excuses have you been making? What excuses have you been making for your disobedience to God? As God spoke through Peter to these early Christians, he's speaking to us right here, Collinsville, Mississippi, 2024. Be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances. And we see that calling on our lives explicitly in verse 14 and 15 here. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Now, you and I need to understand this doesn't just happen naturally. That doesn't happen just incidentally, accidentally. D.A. Carson, theologian D.A. Carson, he once said this, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance he writes we drift toward disobedience and call it freedom 
We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of loss of self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. End quote. What a true statement. What a picture of today's culture and squishy church. Obedience and holiness, guys, is for you and me. Complete holiness is for you and me. I'm not talking about positional holiness, what we would call justification. If you want to get theological for just a moment, yes, in Jesus Christ, we are all perfectly holy positionally before God in Jesus Christ. But I'm not talking about positional holiness. I'm talking about right now on the earth, living in my life, holy. What we might call progressive holiness. Right? Holiness right now where I'm going from what Ben used to be to what God wants me to be. And he wants you and me to be holy, but it doesn't happen naturally. It's not what our inclination is. This world is not set up for that. And so we have to be intentional about it. That's why before God ever calls us to be holy here, he says that we have to get our minds ready. We have to get serious about holiness. That's what he says here at the beginning of verse 13. Look at what it says, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Those two phrases right there, that, that, that's getting our minds ready and getting serious about holiness. You know, the phrase here, preparing your minds for action, literally is gird up the loins of your mind. That's literally what it means there. And that's a phrase that's kind of lost on some of us because we don't gird up my loins. That sounds dirty. <laughs> as far as it goes, you've got a little something going on. I mean, I don't know about that, you know? But that's what people back in the Bible days had to do when they were ready to get after something. I mean, both men and women. You've seen the Christmas plays. You've seen the Easter plays. You know what people, how we depict People dressed back in those days, we depict them that way because, because that's how they dressed. Women wore long dresses and men wore long tunics and, and robes. And if they were really going to have to get after something, then those long garments would constrict their movements. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you'd have to waddle along. And so they would gird up their loins, they would take their long robes and kind of bring them up and put them together and they would take them between their legs and they would tuck them in their belt and kind of turn their long tunics into shorts that way their legs were free to be able to, to really move here if they were going to battle, if they were going to really work if they were going to run, they would have to gird up their loins and then they would be ready for action well God here calls us to gird up the loins of our mind, which means to prepare our minds for action. There has to be a mindfulness and intentionality if you and I are going to be holy. Because again, as Carson said just a moment ago, we don't drift toward it. If anything, we drift from it. So we've got to prepare our minds for action. But not just that. 
We have to be sober-minded. That's what he says here. Sober means more than not being drunk. It means being serious. We're to be serious-minded about our obedience, serious-minded about our holiness. I wonder this morning, church, where would our obedience be if we were half as serious about our holiness as we are about our hunting? Where would we be if we were half as serious about our holiness as we are our health and nutrition and exercise? Where would our holiness be if we were half as serious as we are about following our favorite sports team or, or doing a good job at our work, right? Or, or even our family. All good things. I, everything I mentioned there is good stuff. But if we're being honest this morning, we are way more sober-minded about those things way more serious-minded about those things than we are our holiness. It requires seriousness. It requires readiness. It requires throwing excuses out the window because in the end, there are no excuses for our disobedience. In fact, here, God in His grace, He gives us four reasons for our obedience to spur us along. I want to give you those four reasons this morning, all right? Again, we want to give reasons for our disobedience, and God in His grace gives us reasons for our obedience. And here's the good news. Every one of these, every single one of these springs forth from our Heavenly Father. It doesn't spring forth from in you. The motivation is not necessarily in you. They are all external from us. And that means we, every one of us, no matter our situation, our mindset, or anything, have access to these things to help propel us forward to be obedient children unto holiness, no matter the circumstances. Well, why should we do that? What are those four reasons? First, your father is holy. That's the first reason we get in the text. Your father is holy. And as we come to this text, right, don't overlook the relational dynamic here because it's very key to understanding the dynamic here, okay? It's being emphasized that, that, that He is our Father and we are His child. That's the relationship that we have here. That He's our Heavenly Father. We are His heavenly children if we are in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a distinction that we need to note not everybody on planet earth is a child of God. Every person on planet earth is a creation of God. But not every person is a child of God. You don't become a child of God until you're adopted into his family by grace through faith in Christ. Then you are his child. And as children, we should want to do what all children love to do. Man, they want to imitate their daddy. Ask any boy who they want to be like when they grow up and they will say I'm going to be just like my daddy I love to see the the Facebook videos and pictures of dads doing things with their children and oftentimes what are they doing that child is doing the very thing that their daddy loves to do their dad is their example they love to be like him they want to be like their daddy how he, how he dresses how he talks what he does where he goes and that should be no different for our heavenly Father. We should long to be like Him. We are called to be God-like, godly, 
and, and, and what is God like? Well, our text tells us, verse 15, 1 Peter 1, 15. He who called you, that's unto salvation, is holy. He is holy. Our Heavenly Father is holy. Now, we don't use that word in everyday talk usually. It's just not a word that we use. It's one of those churchy words, a Bible word. So what does it mean? Well, the Bible tells us that holiness, it, 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 over various verses of Scripture, it essentially means this. Southern Baptist theologian Bruce Ware, he writes this to help us understand what holiness is. He says, to say that God is holy is to say that He is eternally separate and distinct from all impurity. The term holiness in Hebrew, Kadesh, has the notion of separation, of uniqueness, of one of a kindness, as it were. So holiness, basic definition, complete separation from sin. God is holy, and we should imitate that. We should imitate that, but it's not just be holy if you want to be holy. No, we're called and commanded to be like him. His holiness calls forth our holiness. Again, look at verse 15 and 16 here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he, that's God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That word for there, you could just take it out and, 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 and translate that as because. The ground for our calling to be holy is based on God's holiness. Because He is holy, we are to be holy. And that means that God is not just our example then. Uh, yes, I, I want to be like Him. We should want to be like Him just like we want to be like our daddy. But God is not just our example, he's our standard. He expects us to be holy. He expects us to be separated from sin. If you guys would, just, just do me a quick favor looking at that passage in your Bible. Could you just help me for a moment? I, I want to count in here, as we look at this text here, how many exceptions are listed here. How many exceptions can you count where God says, be holy as I am holy, except for that situation? Y'all ready? On the count of three, yell out the number. One, two, three. <laughs> None, zero. That's right, y'all good counters. Good job. That was the easiest thing you ever counted in your life. Zero. There are zero exceptions. Just as our Heavenly Father, there are no exceptions in His holiness. And as He is called to be holy, we are called to be holy without exception, no matter the circumstances. Again, I don't know what excuses you brought in this morning. Throw them out. They're worthless. Be obedient, children, unto holiness, no matter the circumstances, because your Father is holy. Second this morning, be obedient because 
your father will judge your works. Your father will judge your works. Now, look at how Peter describes our father in verse 17. It says, you call on him as father. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's, he's established who he's talking about here. Now, here comes the description. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Your father will judge your works. Isn't that what good daddies do? That is what good daddies do. Good daddies, they don't just set the standard, they communicate the standard, and then they hold you accountable to that standard. That's what a good dad does. There's accountability with a good father. Why? Because he loves his children. And those who love their children help them to do what is right. You see, a good dad doesn't just love his children. He loves what is right. That's the balance. That's the tension. Too many parents say, I just love my kids and let them live like hell. That's not love. If you love your children, you help them. In fact, you stand in the gap and help them to walk in holiness, to walk in obedience. And our good God is even better than a good earthly father. He's the best father. He perfectly loves you, and he perfectly loves what is right. And those are not separate things. He loves you, and he loves what's right. Therefore, there is accountability. Remember, holiness means that he loves righteousness and hates sin. And accountability is part of that. Our text says, when we stand before a heavenly father, he will judge us based on our deeds. Were you, was I, holy in this life as God is holy? It's based on the life that we live. And this is not just for the unsaved. I mean, he's talking to the saved here. He's talking to the saints. And a saint is not just the super Christians. It's Christians, those who have been made holy by God in Jesus Christ, those who are walking with God. We will give an account, every one of us. If you need a little more proof of that, it gets no more explicit than 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10. Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, writes, So whether we're at home or away, that means here in this body or, 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 or dead and gone, be with God, we make it our aim to please Him. There's that obedience aspect, right? I aim to please Him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, he's talking to Christians here, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So that's interesting. I need some more clarification on that, Ben. Well, we turn to Romans 14. 
where we read something very similar, Romans 14, 10 through 12. Again, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle Paul. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you who, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. In one place here, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And here it's called the judgment seat of God. Which is it? <laughs> yes, both. God Jesus Christ is God, right, as far as that goes, all right? And so nevertheless here, we see here that we're all going to give an account for our lives, both Christians and non-Christians. And to be honest with you, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I, I don't really know the details of what this means for us. The Bible doesn't tell us. I know you may get a book or, or, or a Bible study about all the rewards and what that's going to be like and how it's going to work out and, and, and how this person's going to have a five-story mansion and this person's going to have a basement mansion, right? Like back in the days in the Speckwoods back where I lived, where I grew up, people just did what they could and so many folks would just build a basement house to begin with and then they would build a house on top of that years later when they got enough money. That's how I grew up. That's how we grew up. We just did what we could at the moment. But maybe it's a five-story mansion, or, or maybe this one who didn't do as much or didn't do as good. Maybe they get that basement mansion. <laughs> I don't know exactly how that works out. The Bible really, it, it just doesn't tell us the details. But it clearly tells us there will be accountability for how we live. Now, that will not change our status of being the father's child that will not change his status as our father that will not change our getting to heaven because we don't get into heaven based on what we did right we enter into heaven by grace through faith in Jesus but like a loving father God will hold us accountable for how we live our life on this earth and somehow God will reward obedience and somehow will discipline disobedience Again, you need further clarification from Scripture. You could go to 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. That's the day of the Lord. When we stand before Christ, when we sit at the, uh, before the, 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 the judgment seat of God, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't really know the details of what that's going to mean. But it does clearly tell us that God will judge our works. That's the implication of our text. Y'all, and in light of that reality, God says here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that then we should pursue 
holiness out of reverent fear. Look at verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17, right here in our text. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, your exile is your time here on earth. Right? We, we, we covered this a few weeks back. The earth, in one sense, is not our home. Right? Our home is with God. Okay, So we're in exile right now. But he says throughout our entire time, and throughout our entire life, we are to, as it says here, conduct ourselves with fear. As a child, it is right to have a holy fear of our daddy. Amen? That's right. right? I, I want my children to have a holy fear of me. I had a holy fear of my daddy. You better believe it. And I want my children to have a holy fear of me. They need to know that if they do wrong, they need to know that I love them. And if they do wrong, I'm going to tear their hind ends up. I mean, I'm, and it's going to hurt them way more than it's going to hurt me. I promise you. <laughs> Woo! I mean, I'm telling you, right? As they get older, whipping them is no longer appropriate. My daddy told me, he said, son, you're too big to whoop. I'm just going to take my fist to you. <laughs> he, he never did that. That was his dad being a tough guy. Dad, if you're watching, I love you. As they get older, whipping is no longer appropriate, so they need to know. They need to know that you will do everything in your power to get their attention. That they will feel the pain so that they will draw away from that which is no good for them that they will draw away from that which will hurt them and kill them. That's what good daddies do. And beloved, that is our Heavenly Father. That's what He will do. And so we should have a reverent, holy fear of God. Just as Proverbs 9.10 says, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wise people fear God. And there are always ditches that we can fall in when it comes to the fear of God. Some generations before us, they were so afraid of God, they treated him like a grizzly bear, right? I mean, they wanted nothing to do with him, right? Keep God away from us. But then the other side is probably the ditch that we're in. Where we don't really don't fear God at all. Ah, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. God will forgive me. Beloved, that is where a lot of us are. That's where Ben Simpson is when I'm not watching my heart, when my mind is not right. And I'm telling you, it is a bad place to be because it's not wise. Wise people fear God because here's the deal. God is no respecter of persons. Guys, that means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your situation is. Your situation doesn't make you special. And I know that so much of our culture today has tried to tell us that our situation is special. I was born this way. I can't help it. I, I, I'm addicted. I mean, we come up with all of these excuses that 
the devil has cooked up and our flesh has cooked up so that we remove ourselves, we think, from responsibility because our situation is special. But God is no respecter of persons. Your situation does not remove this calling from your life. How do we know that? Well, there's that one word right there in verse 17 that is so key. It says that he will judge impartially. He will judge impartially. He will judge like a good father judges. He'll not play favorites. He'll not pretend like he doesn't see it. He'll not say that it's okay. He will judge impartially. Beloved, be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances because your father will judge your works. I want to hit these final two more briefly. Third, be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances because your father ransomed you with the precious blood of Christ. Just consider that for a moment. Just consider the lengths to which God, your Father, went to save you. It's captured right there in verse 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your Father ransomed you with the precious, notice that adjective, the precious blood of Christ. What does that mean? It means it's valuable. And it's interesting because he points to two of the most valuable things on planet Earth. Silver and gold. It doesn't get much more valuable than that. And he says the blood of Christ is even more precious than that. Why? Well, one, because it was innocent blood. He was a lamb without spot. He was a lamb without blemish. But secondly, it was, it was, it was precious because it wasn't just anybody's blood. It was the blood of the Father's only begotten Son. Not the blood of some animal. Not some blood of Joe Smo. It was the blood of his son. And that was precious to him. Jesus spilled his blood. The Father spilled Jesus' blood as well. Not just so that we would be holy one day in heaven, but that we would be holy now. That we would be a holy now on this earth. And so every time, y'all, every time we go on sinning after we've been saved, listen, we devalue the blood of Christ. We treat it as worthless, as something trivial, as something unimportant. And God has a very strong word for you and for me when we do that. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in the 26th verse. It says this. Listen, th take this to heart, y'all. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, listen to this language here, who has trampled underfoot 
the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just go back to the last time that you sinned. I'm not even talking about the big one. Just go back to the last time that you sinned. When you did that, you took the blood of Jesus and threw it out as worthless and then took your foot and ground it into the ground that you would no longer even see it. That's what we do when we go on sinning. And the Father says that that blood is precious. Don't treat it as, don't treat it as unworthy of, 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 um, of a life. Don't treat it as worthless. Don't treat it as trivial. So, beloved, be obedient children unto holiness no matter the circumstances because your Father ransomed you with the precious blood of Christ. And then finally this morning, be obedient children. Why? Because your Father will bring circumstance-changing grace at the Christ's second coming. At Christ's second coming. Now, this was actually first in the list, but I wanted to make it last. So look at verse 13 here. Go to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, here it is, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a technical term there. We've talked about this before, the revelation of Jesus Christ, a technical term talking about his second coming. And when he comes, guys, there is going to be full grace, circumstance-changing grace. Look, I know your circumstances because they're my circumstances. I know the war that wages within my flesh. I know those sinful things that draw me away, those things which pop up and it's like like a magnet and you got to fight it. I know that when you want to just speak and tongue lash and, and, and just blow out everything that you have on your mind and in your heart. right? I've, I know that. I know that the people work around you make you furious because they don't do what they should do. I know that this world is set against you and you have to work so hard because there is a great gravity to our depravity. But God in Jesus Christ is bringing, when Christ comes again, a circumstance-changing grace. This world will be changed. Your body will be changed. You will no longer be apart from God as an exile, but you will be at home with the Father. You will behold Him face to face, and that's coming. And so in this season, these circumstances know that these circumstances are not forever. God is coming with circumstance-changing grace. And so until then, be obedient children unto holiness, no matter the circumstances. How? In Greek mythology, ancient sailors, they faced all sorts of dangers at sea. And one of the most unusual was that of the sirens. 
who used their mesmerizing songs to lure sailors to their deaths on rocky shores. And there were two famous Greeks who were able to sail by them successfully. One was named Odysseus. And how did he get by them? Well, he did this. He stopped up the ears of his men with wax and then had his men tie him to the ship's mast. That way, when the sirens began to sing, to sing his men couldn't hear it, and he couldn't run to them. They were safe. They were able to pass by without harm. But the other one was the legendary Orpheus, who was sailing with Jason and the Argonauts. And as they approached the sirens, they began to hear the sirens' voice lift up over the water. And Orpheus didn't grab the wax. He didn't grab the rope. He grabbed his lyre, his harp, his guitar-like thing. And he began to sing even more charming of a melody to his men than the sirens could sing. Orpheus, not Odysseus, he represents what we want. We don't live this holy life simply by saying, don't do that. We do it by setting our hearts on God and loving the heart of God and the music of God as we opened up with oh taste and see that the Lord is good he is good and I pray you would chase after him with all of your heart may you be holy may you love to live to obey your heavenly father